Amen. My subject for your consideration at Bible study tonight is just a question. It's a question I ran across actually this morning. This hardly ever works for me that I'm reading in my Bible reading and see something for that service that day. That hardly ever happens to me. Uh, I really uh, rejoice with the people that happens to. Their life seems so easy to me. I was standing in his office one time and Brother Wayne Huntley said to me, you know, Brother Woodward, sometimes I just read one verse and I get eight or nine messages out of one verse just reading it. And I said, and I quote, I hate you, Brother Huntley. Because <laughs> I'm a teacher. I have to study and dig and compare verses. And, but this morning I was reading and this came at me for Bible study tonight. A couple of verses I want to bring to your attention in this lesson. Everybody say, what about your reputation? You may be seated. What about your reputation? Coming right on the heels of Israel's miraculous conquest of the city of Jericho. We all know about that one. Joshua and the trumpets and the Ark of the Covenant and the marching for seven days and the walls came down. And coming right on the heels of that, Joshua chapter six ends with some very powerful words. This is the verse. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was noised throughout all the country. Now, I know that everybody in the pagan nations thought it was Joshua's fame that was getting noised abroad. And sometimes we make the same mistake that when God uses somebody or God does a miracle for somebody or God answers two or three of somebody's prayers in a row, we think, wow, they really are special. Can I tell you, it's not their fame that should be noised abroad. It's the Lord's fame that should be noised abroad. And if God blesses our church, that's not a reason for us to get a big head or a smug attitude. It's not about our fame. It's about the Lord's fame. His fame was noised abroad. But all the pagan nations thought this was Joshua. But Joshua got the wind taken out of his sails pretty quickly because one verse later, as chapter 7 opens, it begins with an ominous word. And the word is, but, and here we go. But the children of Israel, in the middle of all that triumph and victory and all that fame being noised abroad, the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, he took of the accursed thing and the anger of the Lord was kindled not just against Achan but against the children of Israel. Now Joshua is about to learn a very, very serious lesson that one person's actions can have a negative effect on the entire congregation of Israel. Never underestimate the amount of damage that one person can do if they're outside the will of God. One person. Now, you don't have to point, but how many of you have had an experience in your life where somewhere, sometime, between the moment of your birth and now, between the North and the South Pole, some one person caused some issues in your life? Could you raise your hand? Good. And the rest of you, God forgive you. <laughs> Never underestimate the amount of damage one person who gets out of the will of God can do. Abraham's disobedience back in Egypt almost cost him his wife. Jonah's refusal to obey God almost sank a ship. King David's disobedience in taking an unauthorized census led to the death of 70,000 people. And human nature hasn't changed very much in 6,000 years. So one key person who gets out of the will of God could certainly have a detrimental effect on a family, on a group of believers, on an entire church. They certainly could because the church is one body in Christ. So we belong to each other. And whether you realize it or not, we need each other. And whether you realize this or not, we affect each other. 
That's why sometimes pastors like me will get in this pulpit and like I did tonight, we'll kind of just insist on let's all worship. Let's push in worship. Let's think about where we are and what we're doing because worship is contagious. We all need each other, but we also all affect each other. And one person who decides they're gonna go from this to this can impact a whole row or maybe a whole section or maybe a whole service because we affect each other. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 12, whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. We all feel the weight when somebody who's beloved in our church congregation slips away from us and goes to heaven or somebody's battling a trial or somebody is dealing with sickness. We all feel that. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. And I will add a PS for Paul, or that's the way it should be. When God uses somebody, we should be thrilled about that. When God blesses somebody, we should rejoice in that. When somebody's backslider comes home, you shouldn't get an attitude because your backslider hasn't come home yet. Your backslider might come home sooner if you'd rejoice with those that rejoice because we all need each other and we all affect each other. Ecclesiastes, Solomon said it like this, wisdom is better than weapons of war but one sinner can destroy a whole lot of good. One person out of the will of God can really mess things up. That's what Joshua is dealing with as we read our text tonight in Joshua chapter 7. The apostle Paul, he compares disobedient people, people out of the will of God, he compares them to leaven uh, or, or yeast. It's, and he compares this leaven or yeast to a type of sin that has to be purged out of the church because if leaven is allowed to stay, if yeast is allowed to stay, it will impact the whole lump of dough. He, so he, he tells the Corinthian church, he's pretty straight, he says, don't keep company with people like that. Don't let your best friends be people that are best at tearing apart the church of the living God. Don't let your closest associates be people that are skeptical and cynical and critical and backslidden. He, he said this in, in 1 Corinthians 5, I have written unto you, don't keep company. If any man that is called a brother, somebody say called a brother. So he's not talking about your associates at work. He's not talking about people that aren't saved in your sphere of influence or in your family. He's not talking about people that don't know the Lord. He's talking about people that say they know the Lord, pretend to know the Lord, but if they're a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer, that's somebody that criticizes violently and viciously, or a drunkard or an extortioner, with such an one, no, not to eat. Don't have coffee at Tim Hortons with somebody that rips good saints of God apart with their tongue. That's really good Bible study teaching. He says, you might even have to turn them over to Satan. Now there's one we don't hear preached a lot anymore. He says that in 1 Corinthians 5. You might have to deliver such an one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. You might have to say, God... Let them feel the full effect of their rebellion, of their sin, of their evil, of their wickedness. Why? So that they can go to hell? No. So their spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. You don't turn somebody over to Satan and say, Lord, take all the restrictions off and let the devil beat them up for a while. You don't do that because you want them to be lost. You do that because you want them to feel the effect of their sin and be saved. He said, your glorying is not good. See, the Corinthians were not doing that. They were putting up with this kind of stuff. He said, don't you know that a little leaven gets into the church and it will leaven the whole lump? Now, where in the world are you going with that, pastor? Nowhere else, no hidden agenda. Here's the agenda. Don't hang around with people that aren't really serving God and they're just saying they're serving God. You can tell when they're a hypocrite. You can tell when they say one thing, but they do another and you just be very, very careful of that. That's it. You can have that part for free. And now back to our previously scheduled lesson. Since Jericho was Israel's first victory in Canaan, that was Jericho, the Bible had required, the law had decreed, and God had asked that the first fruits of the spoils of any battle belonged to the Lord. 
So everything they took from Jericho, their first victory in the promised land, should have gone straight to the treasury of the Lord. But Achan decided he was going to take some clothing and some money, some silver from Jericho, and he hid it in his tent under the earth. It was selfish and it was stupid. Where in the world was he going to wear a Babylonish garment in Israel? It's like people would notice. Where was he going to go to the coffee shop in Israel and spend Babylonian silver? People would notice. So it was a selfish act, but it was also stupid. And furthermore, if he had waited just a few days, he could have taken anything he wanted from the spoils of the next battle at Ai. He could have taken anything because the first city, the spoils of the first fruits belonged to God. After that, he could have had any garments, any silver he wanted, but he got impatient and he got selfish and he was really not very smart and he insisted on taking these things from Jericho. And so instead of having a victory at Ai, the second city, Israel lost that battle because of one man's covetousness because of one man's greed. One person can affect a family. One person can affect a destiny. One person can affect a service, good or bad. One person can affect a church, good or bad. One person. It's, it's amazing. Now, AI, we say it that way in English, but actually the pronunciation in Hebrew is I. And that's what I'd like to be like, just kind of like our friend, Brother Cahosey. And when I talk about AI, I'd like to say, ay, yay, 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 because that's how you pronounce it actually in Hebrew. Since I or AI was a smaller city than Jericho, when they went up against it, victory seemed like it was inevitable. We can do this easily. The council of Joshua's spies that went in and looked, they said, don't, don't waste the whole army. Don't even bother sending in the whole army. 3,000 men will easily do it. It's a tiny little city. It's nothing like Jericho. This is easy. But because there was sin hidden in the camp, 36 men died and Israel suffered a humiliating defeat and actually had to flee from their enemies. But worse yet, this happened. The Bible says the men of Ai smote them about 36 men for they chased them from before the gate even to Sabarim, and they smote them in the going down. Here's the worst part of all of that. When they suffered that embarrassing defeat, the hearts of the people melted and they became as water. There's something about defeat that just shakes your confidence. There's something about defeat that just kind of saps your strength and, and it wounds your faith and that's what happened. And Joshua is so distraught. He is so upset. And so he goes to the Lord. Now, if I could just kind of insert myself, one leader evaluating another leader, I think maybe he's very distraught, but he's also probably suffering from a bruised ego. This is the guy that chapter six ended by saying, Joshua's fame was noised abroad throughout all the country, and now they're running from this tiny little city. So he's distraught and he's upset, and his ego's probably bruised, and he goes into full-fledged mourning. And in Israel, when you mourn something, you didn't say, well, that's too bad. You fell on the ground, you tore your clothes, and you poured dirt over your head consistently. So that's what Joshua is doing right now. But worse than that, Joshua, the great leader, the man who was Moses' assistant, the man who saw the 10 plagues and the man who saw uh, the crossing of the Jordan and the man who saw the pillar of cloud and fire, the man who saw all the miracles that God did for them during the 40 years of wilderness wandering, now he's beginning to question God after one battle that didn't go his way. And this is what hit me this morning. And I, I literally kind of chuckled out loud when I read this this morning. Joshua chapter seven, verse eight and verse nine. Oh Lord, what am I gonna say when Israel runs, turns their backs and flees before their enemies? What am I gonna say about that, God? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land, they're gonna hear about this, God, and, and shall environ us round. They will, they'll, they'll gang up on us. They'll come around us. They'll surround us and they'll cut off our name from the earth. 
And here's his question for God. This made me laugh this morning. And what wilt thou do unto thy great name? Or literally what he said, you check it out. God, what about your reputation? That's his question. God, what are you gonna do about your reputation? When everybody hears what we did and our mistake and our failure and we lost the battle and we fled and we're not doing very well and right now I've got sand in my hair and I've got my shirt torn and I'm laying on the ground wailing like a baby. God, what are you gonna do about your reputation? And sometimes I think that's our question as well. But can I just state the obvious in Bible study tonight? I know you came to hear something deep and profound that you'd never heard before. But could I just state the obvious? You do not have to defend God's reputation. You, you, you don't. He is more than capable of looking after himself. You don't have to explain to anybody else why God does what he does or why God requires what he requires or why God doesn't answer every prayer you pray the way you think he should answer when you pray. You don't have to explain that. That is above your pay grade. You do not have to answer the question, God, what about your reputation? You don't have to answer that. That was Joshua's question. I like this next little part. It's not original with me, uh, but I, I love this. Listen to this. God is more massive than our wildest imagination. He is bigger than the biggest words we have to describe him. God is constant. He sustains the galaxies, holding every planet in orbit and every star in place. God blinks his eye and your lifetime comes and goes. To God, your God, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. You could write all of human history on God's little fingernail and still have room left over for more. And God, our God, your God, the God you were worshiping tonight, he's doing very well today. Thank you for asking. He has no dilemmas, no quandaries, no counselors, no shortages. He has no rivals, no fears, no cracks, and no worries. Our God, this God, your God, he is self-existent, self-contained, self-perpetuated, self-powered, and self-aware. In other words, our God is God, and he knows that he is God, and you don't have to defend his reputation. Our God is timeless, ageless, changeless. He's always after an eternity, now I know work wore you out today, but after an eternity of being God, holding the universe together, God shows no signs of wear and tear, and he's not even tired. He's not even breaking a sweat. Our God has no needs. His accounts are all in the black. He's the owner, not to mention the creator, of all the world's wealth and treasure. He made all the gold and silver and he also made all the trees that give us paper to print our money on. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the old preacher said, and he owns every hill that every one of those cows are standing on. Behind the incredible wisdom of man that we admire is the even more incredible wisdom of God. Because everything we could ever dream up or think of was originally God's invention, God's design, and God's idea because he created those human brains that think up that technology that amazes us. And so our God, this God, your God, my God, he does whatever he wants to do, period, end of story. God's purposes are a sure thing. There's no stopping him, no containing him, no refuting him. You can't cut God off at the paths. You can't short circuit God's agenda because God is in control.
The Bible tells us that he sends forth lightning from his storehouse. He breathes out the wind. He waters the earth. He raises up rulers. He directs the course of nations. He births life. He ordains death. And in the middle of it all, this God still has time to be intimately acquainted with the everyday affairs of everybody in this room and everybody in this city and everybody in this world. God is that kind of a God. He knows everything about everything. His eyes race back and forth across the cosmos faster than you can scan the words on your page. There's not a bird flying through the air or perched on a branch anywhere that escapes God's field of vision. Our God could start with Adam and name every man, woman, and child who has ever lived and he could describe every detail about everyone and never refer to a reference source. To God, the dark midnight and the bright noonday are exactly one and the same. Nothing is hidden from him and our God doesn't wrestle with any mysteries. He doesn't need to wait for a polygraph test to figure out if you're telling him the truth. He's never known what it is to have a teacher, a role model, an advisor, a therapist, a loan officer, or a doctor. He doesn't need any of that. Our God's rule and reign are unrivaled in history and unrivaled in eternity. This God, our God, sits on an everlasting throne. His kingdom has no end. Little gods abound everywhere, but only our God made the heavens and the earth, and he did it all by himself. So the God you're praising tonight, he has never feared a power struggle or a hostile takeover. Our God doesn't have to watch his back because he has no equal, no peer, and he has no competition. So could one more time, could I just state the obvious? You don't have to defend God's reputation. Our God is more than capable for looking after himself and looking out for himself. So let's just be honest. When we ask questions like that and when we have days like that and we feel like Joshua, could we just be honest? It's really not God's reputation that we're defending. It's really not God's reputation that we're concerned about. Like Joshua, we're really usually just concerned about our own reputation. Hmm. Turn to somebody and say, what about your reputation? You don't have to breathe on them. I know you're scared to do that. Just ask them. You know, it's our reputation we're, we're, we're worried about. We fear how we will look in the eyes of others if our God makes a rule or gives a commandment that we can't explain to the satisfaction of the critics. We worry about what will happen or what people will think if God doesn't answer a prayer to the satisfaction of the cynics. We get concerned about what other people will think about us if God doesn't heal every disease and punish every evildoer and shut down every hate-filled regime in the world to the satisfaction of the skeptics that say, why would God allow that to happen? We even get worried if God doesn't solve every problem and resolve every situation to the satisfaction of all the other saints in the church. It's, let's be honest, it's not God's reputation we're worried about. It's our reputation we're worried about, just like Joshua. Because our God, he, he's amazing. Our God is well in charge and he's firmly in control. It's not his reputation that needs any help. So isn't it ironic that we spend so much time worrying about our reputation with other people and as Christians even worried about what people will think of our God. You know, I don't hope they don't think he's too judgmental and I hope they don't think he's too hard with all those commandments. And, and, and I hope nobody hears about God is holy so you be holy. Oh my, my goodness, what will we ever do if anybody ever discovers that that's in the Bible? What are we going to do about all those people and all those wars in the Old Testament? How are we going to answer the skeptics and the cynics and the critics? And we get so worried about God's reputation, but it's really not God's reputation. We're worried about it all. 
It's what will people think of us if we serve and worship a God that they can't explain and we don't have a good explanation for some of the stuff he does. How do you define deity? How, how do you enumerate an awesome eternal God? You, you can't. And so are, there are times when our God, this God you worship tonight, he's not gonna be easily contained in a normal seven to eight o'clock Wednesday night service. He's, he's gonna defy that a little bit. There are times when God's not gonna be content for us to just go through motions. He's gonna want something more. And, and, and people don't understand why we would be so dedicated to come into a building and listen to a, a preacher talk from a book and, and pray and worship and lift hands and clap hands and sing out loud. Why would you do that? So, see, they don't understand. And they might think, you're weird. And you might get concerned. God, at work, they think I'm weird. Now, what are you gonna do about your reputation? It's not God's reputation you're worried about. It's your reputation you're worried about. Just like Joshua. After their defeat at Ai, when Joshua began to seek the Lord for direction, God began to reveal some things to Joshua. And here's one of the things he revealed. You know, it's ironic. We spend a lot of time thinking about what people might think of our reputation or even what people might think of God's reputation when what we really should be concerned about is what God thinks of our reputation, whether we have a name that we're doing okay, but really we're not. That's what was happening in Israel. Joshua chapter seven, verse 12. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies. This is the other verse I noticed this morning. But they turned their backs before their enemies. They ran away because they were accursed. Who, the enemies? No, Israel was accursed. Israel had allowed sin in the camp. And God said, this is why, Joshua, this is why you had the defeat. This is why you had the embarrassment. This is why the battle didn't go like you thought because they couldn't stand before their enemies because they were hiding something in the camp. There was secret sin in the camp. And so they ran before their enemies and you wanna blame me for it. But it wasn't me, it was you. It wasn't God, it was the children of Israel. Neither will I be with you anymore unless... You destroy the accursed from among you. You got to deal with the real issue, Joshua. The real issue isn't that God let you down or God didn't come through or God didn't win the battle for you. The real issue is there's something buried in the camp of Israel that you need to deal with. And if you'll deal with it, I'll be with you and we'll get back to normal. And so this is what God is speaking to Joshua. This is the reason Israel couldn't stand before their enemies, Joshua. Because Israel was their own worst enemy. Israel had some hidden things in the camp. There was secret sin buried under the dirt under somebody's tent flap. And that is what caused their defeat. I didn't let them down. They let themselves down. And Joshua, defeat will keep happening. The same issue will keep resurfacing unless you deal with the sin. Unless you deal with the rebellion, unless you deal with the real issue, you're gonna still keep having issues. Now the name Achan, it means trouble. That's what Achan means, it means trouble. And he would forever be known as the man who brought trouble to Israel. His secret sin didn't stay secret for very long because God revealed it. God talked to Joshua and through some kind of divine direction, Joshua singled out the tribe of Judah, then the family of the Zerhites, and from there he narrowed it down to Zerah's son Zabdi and Zabdi's son Carmi, and finally Carmi's son Achan, and finally Achan made this confession. Here's what really happened. When I saw among the spoils of Jericho a goodly Babylonish garment, and I saw 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight. I was tempted, I coveted them, and I took them. And the real problem wasn't God. It wasn't God's reputation. It was that I was putting on a false reputation. It wasn't a problem with God, it was a problem with me. It wasn't a problem from the heavens, it was a problem buried under my tent flap. That's what it was. Behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent, and the silver's under the garment. Now, since the law of Israel prohibited 
innocent family members from being punished for the sins of their relatives. That's Deuteronomy 24 and 16. You couldn't punish children for the sin of their parents. You couldn't punish a spouse for the sin of, of their spouse. So it's obvious from the passage that Achan's family must have all helped him cart all that stuff back to their tent because God commanded that the entire household be judged and they were stoned to death in the sight of all of Israel. And the spot where they were stoned and where they died would forever be referred to as the Valley of Achor. Achan means trouble. This was the Valley of Achor. And so it means the Valley of Trouble. And so forever there was this spot on the map in Israel, the Valley of Achor or the Valley of Trouble. And it's where Achan died and where finally they got this righted. Achan's sin was selfish and Achan's sin was stupid, but it was also short-sighted. He didn't destroy Israel with his sin. He didn't destroy Israel with his rebellion. He didn't destroy Israel with what he was hiding. He only destroyed himself and his family. Israel was ultimately victorious because just one chapter later, Joshua comes back with an ambush strategy and they defeat Ai and everything is fine. So Achan, he slowed God's purpose temporarily, but he couldn't stop it ultimately. And so something for you to think about. Do people like Achan who have hidden secret sin and saw these issues, do they slow down the progress of the church sometimes? I would say absolutely yes. Do they put extra strain on the leadership sometimes? Probably yes. Do they hinder what God wants to do? I would say yes. But you're the core of this church. You're here at Bible study. Let me tell you that those are not the questions that we should be asking. There's just one question that matters for every one of us, from pastor to everybody in the building, no matter what age. The question isn't, do they slow down the progress of the church or do they sometimes hinder temporarily what God wants to do? I think the answer would be obviously, yes, the Bible would indicate that and experience would indicate that. That when we deal with one person that has a major issue or a secret sin and it comes out, it can cause all kinds of trouble. The Bible even says that if one person gets a root of bitterness, many can be defiled by that. That's in the New Testament. And so I think it's unquestionable that those questions would be answered in the affirmative. Yes, one person can have a detrimental effect on a family. One person can have a detrimental effect on a marriage. One person can have a detrimental effect on a group of believers. I think that's obvious. But those aren't the questions that matter. The only question that really matters is, are you one of those people? That's the only question that really matters. God will deal with them, whoever they are. So you forget about them. You leave that with God and with the pastors. You just make sure that you are not hiding something in your heart. You just make sure that you are not hiding some kind of hidden secret compartment in your life. Because here's the 411 if you haven't noticed. We're going to outpray every doubter eventually. We're going to outgive every stingy person eventually. We're going to outworship all of our critics. And in some cases, we are just going to keep at it until we outlive some of the complainers. We will do it. It will happen. It's going to be fine. The church will prevail. Jesus is in charge and his reputation is intact. But in the meantime, while some of them might be creating problems or havoc or whatever, you forget about them. The real question for every one of us is, God, what does my reputation look like? Not to the congregation, not to the pastor. What does my reputation look like in God's eyes? Because the real issue is not what is my reputation or what is our reputation in the eyes of anybody. The real question is not what's God's reputation. God can defend his own reputation. The real question is not what others think. It's what God thinks about us. That's the question. It's ironic that we spend so much time worrying about our reputation with others and about God's reputation with people that have questions about them when what we really should be concerned about is our reputation with God. It is possible to operate in a Pentecostal style. We got that. 
We're Pentecostal by style. But we have to be Pentecostal by lifestyle. That's the important thing. It is possible in a great church like this to inherit the blessings of our elders. We have got people that have been praying over this place on this hill for decades. Some of them are gone to heaven now. Some of them are still living, but they've been praying over this little spot and this little auditorium and this little hilltop. They've been praying about it before some of us ever came along. But it's possible to inherit the blessings of our elders and not get a hold of the burden of our elders that gave birth to everything we enjoy. So the question isn't, does CCC have a, an apostolic Pentecostal reputation? I think that's probably pretty secure. The question is, do we have an apostolic Pentecostal reality behind the uh, reputation? And that can't be answered collectively. That can't be answered by saying, well, I attend an apostolic church, therefore I'm an apostolic. I attend a praying church, therefore I'm a prayer warrior. I attend a worshiping church, therefore I'm a worshiper. You could just be coasting on the reputation of a collection of people that happen to sit in your proximity on a Sunday morning. The real question is, what does God think of your reputation? You might have a reputation that you're doing pretty good, but what does God see when he looks down to see, see something hidden under the floor of the tent. It's possible to believe apostolic doctrine and not ever embrace apostolic dedication. It's possible to practice praising God and never pray to God. That's possible. It's possible to have an apostolic reputation and not really experience apostolic revival. I don't want to just have a reputation as a church that we're doing as good as whoever, fill in the blank. I want to do the perfect will of God for our church, for this people, for this place, and for this time in God's kingdom. And that might not look like what God's doing anywhere else. God might call us to some unique dedication or some unique sacrifice or some unique season of prayer or fasting or sacrifice or giving up something. God could call us to that. And what matters in that moment is, well, we're doing as good as so-and-so. Beware the comparison trap. The Bible still says, your Bible still says, they that compare themselves among themselves are not wise. In the Greek language, that means they're really dumb. Be careful. Because it's easy to look around and say, well, I'm doing as good as him. I'm doing at least as good as her. I worship at least as much as he does. I pray at least as much as she does. That's not the issue. The issue is, what does God see? What does God think? What is your reputation in heaven, not your reputation among all the other people of God? What's your reputation in heaven? You say, well, that's an Old Testament story. Glad you brought that up. Revelation chapter three. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, these things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You can't fake me out. You can't hoodwink me or pull the wool over my eyes. I know thy works. And here was God's problem with the church in Sardis. You have a name that you live. You have a name that you're alive. You have a name that you're apostolic. You have a name that you're a praying group of people. You got the name. You've got a name that you live, but you're dead. Be watchful. Strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. You need to build up those things that are ready to just kind of cave in because I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard. Remember what the elders said. Remember how the elders lived. Remember the things you have received and heard and hold them fast and repent. Isn't that a wonderful word, repent? Repent doesn't mean cry. Repent doesn't mean feel bad. Repent, repent doesn't mean that you have to feel so sorry that you're just a mess for days. No, repent simply means change your mind. Repent, just turn around and do it different. If therefore you don't watch, here's what's gonna happen. I'm gonna come upon you as a thief and you won't know what hour I will come upon thee. 
Uh, we don't hear it much in North American Christianity anymore, but Jesus is still coming back for a people that are really living for him. And we do not live for him as a church. We live for him as individuals that make up the church. So if I could just say this very plainly, it's possible to have a reputation that you're spiritually alive and you're doing just what everybody else is doing while inside you're really dead. It's possible for everybody that sits around you at church to think you're okay while God knows you're not okay. That's possible. It's possible to belong to this church and not really belong to God's church. And that, brothers and sisters, is the only reputation you should be concerned about. God can defend his own reputation. You don't have to be concerned about what people think of God, nor do you have to be concerned what people think of you. Your main concern, my main concern, our main concern should be, what does God think of us? What does God think of our response to him? What does God think of our worship? Not pastor. Pastor can end up being a Pentecostal cheerleader. It's not if pastor thinks I worshiped okay. What does Jesus think of my response to him when I'm sitting in church surrounded by his mercy and blessed by his grace and filled with his spirit and baptized in his name and I've got all these hundreds of blessings that God has poured out on my life over and over again. The the issue is not, did I respond well enough to keep pastor off my back or to make everybody think I'm doing my part? No, what does God think about how I lifted my voice and lifted my heart and lifted my hands? It's my reputation in heaven that I need to be concerned about. It's possible to belong to this church and not really belong to God's church. That keeps pastors up at night because... <laughs> It's possible to preach to dear, sweet people that are so kind and so friendly and they come among us every week and they sit here and, and they enjoy the preaching enough to keep coming back. I'm not sure I figured out that yet. Especially with this particular preacher. But they keep coming back. I'm so grateful for that. So thankful for that. But that's not enough. You got to have a real relationship with God for yourself, by yourself. If nobody else is around, that's the relationship. That's the reputation that matters. Could you forget about whether other people think you're spiritual? That's not even on heaven's radar. What does God think about your relationship with him? That's what matters. It starts by getting involved in a church, but it's not completed by just being involved in a church. At some point, it has to transition from this to you. At some point, prayer has to not be a meeting on Friday and a few minutes in services on Sunday and Wednesday. Prayer has to be you. And it has to be Jesus. And it has to be personal at some point. You say, boy, wow, that's heavy. It kind of is. But I've got a good word to end tonight. Years later, that valley of Achor, the valley of trouble, it was always called that forever, where Achan had been buried under a pile of rocks that became his tomb. Later, the valley of Achor would appear in one of the minor prophets, and Hosea would say this. He would say about the valley of trouble. He would say about the place of hypocrisy. He would say about the place of rebellion and the place of greed and the place where there was hidden sin. He would say about the valley of trouble, he would say this, and I will give her her vineyards from thence and I will give to Israel the valley of trouble, the valley of Achor. God said, I'm gonna turn it into a door of hope. And Israel will sing there where there was once hypocrisy, where there was once hidden sin, where there was once just an image and not a reality. She's going to sing there as in the days of her youth and she will be restored as in the days when she came up out of the land of Egypt. How does that happen? How do you have such a turn that it goes from faking to reality, that it goes from hidden sin to victory, that it goes from rebellion and greed and all the stuff that messed up Achan. How do you have it that it turns around that much? The next verse is kind of unique. And it shall be at that day, saith the Lord, thou shalt call me Ishi, 
and you will no more call me Bailey. Now, that doesn't make sense in English. Those are old Hebrew names. And they actually, one of them came from pagan gods. Here's what God said to Israel. Ishi means my husband and Bailey means my master. God said, Israel, here's what will turn it around. Here's what will turn all your deficiencies and all your lack and all the places where you weren't really living it. Here's what will turn it around. If you'll stop looking at me as just your master that gives you rules and gives you commandments and holds you to the line, if you'll ever change your relationship with me, stop calling me Bailey, my master, and start calling me Ishi, my husband. I'm not doing this out of obligation. I'm not doing this out of God's expectation. I am doing this because I am so in love with God that whatever he asks of me, I'll do it. Whatever he needs from me, it's his. Whatever he asks me to give up, it's already his. There's no question. There's no argument. There's no resistance because God's not just my master who gives me rules to live by. God is my Ishi. He's my husband. It's a love relationship. That is what turned in the days of Hosea, what turned the valley of trouble into a door of hope. It is always what turns any secret issue, any struggle, any hidden sin, any difficulty that you haven't been honest about. I'm not asking you to come up here and come clean with all of us. I'm just asking you to make sure you've come clean with Jesus. I'm not asking you to come up here and bend over the altar and cry loud sobs that we can all hear and say, well, so-and-so got a good touch tonight. That really doesn't matter because you could be faking that. What really matters is, what does Jesus think of your reputation? Turn to somebody and say, what about your reputation? It's not God's reputation we have to worry about. He can look after that. I promise you he can. And it's not the reputation of this church or the reputation of you or the reputation of your pastor that we have to worry about so much. If they're living for God, that will work itself out. Here's what we need to worry about. Here's what we need to have first on our radar. What does God think when he looks down at me? What does God think? If somebody says prayer, I know what you think. Maybe what you think of me or what I think of you. What does God think when the word prayer is uttered? They haven't talked to me in two weeks. What does God think when prayer is uttered? What does God think when we talk about worship and God's thinking, they may be in a building where people are worshiping, but they haven't worshiped me. It's not your reputation among us that's so important. What's your reputation like in heaven? And that's what the Lord gave me for you tonight. I hope you've received it in the spirit in which it was given to you. And I wish you'd lift up your hands right now because I'd like to pray over us. And I sure would wish that you don't make this a prayer performance by pastor, but I wish you'd lift up your voice and you would pray too at the end of Bible study. Lord Jesus, I receive your word tonight. I received it from you this morning and I pray for every believer that's in this room that they would receive it from you tonight. I pray Jesus, that it would be received in the same spirit that you gave it to me. Lord Jesus, it's not about condemning anybody. It's not about putting guilt on anybody. It's just a genuine challenge from the spirit of God. Lord God, I want to be real. I want to be authentic. I want to be open before you. I want my heart and my motives and my activities and my thoughts and my words and my deeds to be be an open book before you. Jesus, when I get to the end of this day and every other day, God, I want you to look down at my life and I want my reputation in heaven to be. He did good for my kingdom today. Well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus, we can't wait to hear that on the final day. We need to hear that every day if we're going to get to the final day. So Lord Jesus, I pray for my family, these believers, this
this local church, these great people. God, it's possible to belong to a great church like this and have sin hidden under the tent flap of our lives. It's possible to come to service after service and never deal with the issue and just think that it gets taken care of because we're among godly people. Jesus, that's not true. That's not biblical. That's not scripture. So Jesus, I pray that the same challenge you put on me this morning, you'd put on these wonderful people tonight. Not a condemning word, but a convicting word. Not a word to push them down, but a word to lift them up. God, anything in my heart that is not of you, anything in my heart that is not like you, anything in my heart that displeases you, God, I root it out. You don't have to come looking for it. I give it to you and I say I repent. God, anything in my heart that is putting up a barricade between me and your spirit. God, you don't have to come and put your finger on it. I put my finger on it tonight and I say, Jesus, you take it. Jesus, I want to deal with it. Jesus, I repent of it because God, the most important thing to me is what you think of me. The most important thing to me is what heaven thinks of me. I rebuke that little spirit of hurry and rush and distraction that's here right now. And I want God's people to be released to pray in the spirit for a few minutes. Pray in the spirit for a few minutes. Let the word and the Holy Ghost just kind of saturate your heart. It'll do you good. Let the word and the Holy Ghost convict you a little bit. It'll do you so much good. Let the word get in between where you really live. Let the word get under your reputation and just kind of convict you of about your reality tonight. I need about two dozen people to turn up the intensity on that prayer and you could affect the rest of us because one person can affect a family. One person can affect a, a service. One person can affect a church. So if I could get a few of you to just kind of crank up the intensity of that prayer for a minute. The Holy Ghost is talking. Pastor doesn't have to lay his finger on it when the Holy Ghost has laid his finger on it. Pastor doesn't have to point it out when the word has pointed it out. God, I want to be real and open and honest and true before you. Search me, oh God. Know my heart. Search me, oh God. See if there's any wicked way in me. Cleanse me, oh God, from any unrighteousness. Cleanse me from secret faults and secret sins, God. Let me be open and honest and real and true before heaven. Turn the spotlight, the searchlight of your word on my thoughts and on my motives, on my heart and on my soul. I worship you, Jesus. I worship you, Jesus. If you're honest with God, he'll turn even your valley of trouble into a doorway of hope. He'll do it tonight. He'll do it before you pillow your head. He'll do it for you because he loves you.